into God's Word and press our mind into this text out of Luke chapter 15 that we began last week. What kind of community Jesus is building is the question answered by Jesus' most famous parable. It's a parable, it's, actually, it's one parable, but it's made up of three components, three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the telling of this parable is in response to some muttering, some low-volume griping that Jesus hears. And Luke is the one that helps us to understand this context. He says at the very beginning of that verse, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Unacceptables, the undesirables are all gathering around Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Jesus is, is welcoming unacceptables. He is building community with undesirables. And so in, in the minds of the Pharisees, I mean, this is, this is just irksome. They are irked. It's just so irritating for them to see, because in their mind, God does not accept the unacceptable. That God, in building His community, does not desire the undesirables. And this kind of thinking comes from a really bad God narrative that is based on moral performance. We talked about this last week. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. A bad God narrative based on moral performance. And the irony of this is that their own narrative is completely lost on them. The Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law, they themselves, being human, could not live up to God's narrative, to that, that narrative either. They couldn't do God's will perfectly. They could not do it without blemish. And that's what made them hypocrites, and that's what made them self-righteous. What the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees needed, and Jesus is going to give them, is a new God narrative. And that's what Jesus is doing in this parable. And as we break down this parable in its simplest terms, what we see are these three points. Something is sadly lost. It could be a sheep, it could be a coin. And what is lost is diligently sought. The shepherd goes after the one sheep, the woman goes after the one coin. And what is sought is joyfully found. Over and over, Jesus says that there's angels in heaven celebrating over one sinner that repents. Now, the question that we considered last week was this. What kind of community of faith is Jesus building? And the answer is this. It is a community that is built on grace that welcomes all. That's what we are as the body of Christ. We're a community of grace. No one is here on their own merit. A community of grace, a gift of God, our salvation, our adoption into sonship and into daughtership that welcomes everyone, that welcomes all. Which brings us now to this week's question, which is, what has to happen in us? What has to happen in us for that community to be built here? Oddly enough, Jesus explains how this community is built, how this community comes together by illustrating it with a community that is falling apart. Now there is a father who has two sons. Now we're now into the third part of that, that parable. 
He has a father who has two sons. Now think about that, that God narrative, the bad God narrative, that you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. One of the sons in the story is a do-bad son, a do-bad boy. And the other son is a do-good boy, a do-good son. But in reality, the bad God narrative makes both of these boys vandals. They both are vandals. Now, historically, a vandal was part of a Germanic tribe that came down from the north and ransacked Rome, destroyed it. And the word vandal has become part of our vernacular, and everyone has an experience of vandalism, right? Sometimes it's the destruction of a piece of property. Sometimes it's graffiti. But what it is is taking something from the way it's supposed to be and making it something that it's not supposed to be. In other words, a vandal makes ugly something that's beautiful. And again, we've all had experiences of that. And in this parable, the, the end part of this parable, we're going to see three things. The younger vandal, the older vandal, and the healing of the vandal heart. Now let's start with that first one, the younger vandal. Typically, when we read the story of the prodigal son, we focus all of our indignation, our righteous indignation, on the younger son, and with two good reasons. The first is this. The younger son is going to be insulting of the father. It, there's no other way to explain it. He humiliates and he insults his father. While the father is still alive, this younger son comes to him one day and says in verse 12, Give me my share. Father, give me my share of the estate. In essence, what this younger boy is saying is, I want to live as if you don't exist. I want to get on with my life while I have a little bit of pizzazz to enjoy it. I want to live my life as if you don't exist. I want to put some distance between you and me. Give me mine, and I'm out of here. Now, to get what he wants, he's going to have to say adios to the Father. Now, this is an incredibly insulting and humiliating thing to happen to this Father. You know, as a young minister, you never forget one of the first calls out to a domestic dispute. I was uh, in another place, got a phone call at about uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, and it was actually a grandmother, member of our church. And she said, uh, can you come over to my daughter's house? The police have been called. It's really, really bad. And so I drove over there, and when I got there, there had been a domestic dispute between a daughter and the mother, and it had gotten ugly and physical. And at some point, it had gotten so physical and so bad that the police had been called. And when I got there, the younger daughter, the, the, the kiddo, was in handcuffs and sitting in the back of that squad car, and the mom was, was just shaken. And the first thing she said was, how in, in the world did this happen? And the second thing she said is that this is so embarrassing, it's, it's so humiliating that this has happened. There's this really famous, uh, great Middle Eastern uh, uh, expert on the Middle Eastern culture of the first century, a fellow by the name of Kenneth Bailey. 
And he, he writes that a traditional Middle Eastern father can only respond one way when a son comes up and says, basically, I wish you were dead. Can I have the stuff? I want to put some distance between you and me. Give me mine, and I'm out of here. Kenneth Bailey, who lived for decades in the Middle East, says a traditional Middle Eastern father can only respond one way. He is expected to refuse. There's no way I'm going to give you the estate. And to drive the boy out of the house with verbal, if not physical, blows. Now that's what everybody expects in the parable that Jesus is telling. But the father does not kick the son, the younger son, to the curb. He does the most unexpected thing. He complies with the wish. So not only now has this son humiliated and insulted the father, but now in the divvying out of the estate, the younger son is going to put the family's future at risk. You'll remember in the ancient Hebrew world, in in the Hebrew scriptures, when a father died, his estate was going to be divided up among his sons, with the oldest son getting a double portion. You can go to places like Deuteronomy chapter 21 to read about that. The older son was given that greater portion or given that, that double share because the father was going to invest in him the responsibility for the survival of the family, not only in terms of its wealth and its stuff, but to keep the family together. Now, there's two boys, and one of them has come to the father and has said, give me mine. In essence, the younger son is asking for a third of the estate. And as soon as he gets it, we read that he got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, that, that verb, got together, in the original language, is the verb that is used when you gather together the crops to turn it into cash. And what Jesus is saying is that when he is given all that he is supposed to, to receive of the estate, he sells it, he liquidates it. He sells it, he, he, he turns it into cash, something that's easy to transport, it's easy to spend, and it becomes easy to spend. Jesus says he squanders it. And you know the rest of the story, right? He goes from riches to rags, he ends up starving, he ends up in the worst place possible. But in that worst place possible, at the very rockiest of the bottom of the bottoms, he comes to his senses, and he turns around, And he goes home, and it looks like unity might be restored. But that brings us to the older son, Vandal. Notice in verse 12, next verse please. So he divided, the father divided his property between them. So not only did the younger son get his stuff, but the older brother is given his share too. Now, again, in a traditional Middle Eastern family, when this kind of thing happens, which nobody could imagine happening, but it would have been normal, the normal thing for the the older son, the future head of the family, entrusted with the family staying together and the flourishing of the family, it was normal to think that this guy would refuse his share And he would try to reconcile the father and the son. He would act as a reconciler. But no. The older son does not help with the reconciliation. 
And here's the thing, even if he did not like his younger brother, in this culture, in this time, he would have tried for reconciliation on behalf of the father. But he doesn't do it. When the older son hears that the lost younger son is now the found younger son, the gone-into-the-far-land son is now the at-home-again son, he does not react as expected. Now, Jesus is telling this parable, right? It's got three parts. When a lost sheep is found, what is expected? Rejoicing, celebration. When a lost coin is found, what is expected? Rejoicing. You know, the lady gets kind of the neighborhood coffee clatched together, and, you know, they celebrate finding this coin. When the lost son is found, it is the father's greatest day. And he's wanting to celebrate, but the older boy does not rejoice. The older son does not rejoice. He is not a fan of the robe and the ring and the killing of the fatted calf. Doesn't like the way that the father is expending the treasures, the wealth, the estate, the resources. Which means that he's got his eyes on the father's stuff too. Jesus once said, Sermon on the Mount, in fact, you know, right before he goes into talking about, about you know, the kingdom of God, he says, where your treasure is, where it becomes obvious, where your eyes are always looking, what you're always thinking about, what you're always wanting to collect, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Going back to Luke chapter 15 and verse 28, the older brother becomes so angry. I don't like all of this, the ring and the robe, maybe, but the calf? You killed Spotty as well for this kid? He doesn't like it, and he becomes angry, and he refuses to go in. Lost sheep, shepherd goes and finds him. Lost coin, wife or the woman goes and finds the lost coin. The lost boy and the father went out and pleaded with him to come in. By not going into the celebration, the older son is saying, I don't want to be a part of a family that has somebody like that kid in it. If he's going to be a part of this family, I don't want to be a part of this family. I mean, look at him, Father. He's been living with pigs. He smells like a pig. He talks like a pig. He must be a... But he's a lost son who's now home. This older boy is turning something beautiful. The Father's greatest day, the celebration, the Father's greatest day. The boy was lost, but now he's found into something ugly. You see, the older boy's a vandal too. And in making the father come out to him, he too, the older son too, is insulting of the father. And it becomes obvious as everybody is listening to this story 
that both sons desire to live without the father. You ever, you ever know anybody, uh, this is just a rhetorical question, you don't need to respond or raise your hand, but have you ever known somebody that thought, you know, to get what I want out of life, i got to get rid of the father. So how do you heal the vandal heart? How do you heal the vandal heart? I have uh, discovered over the years that the most harmful things about me as a husband and the most harmful things about me as a father to two children were the very things that I oftentimes did not see about myself. That the most harmful things about me as a dad and the most harmful things about me as a husband were things that I could not and did not see about or refused to see about myself. But over the years, I have discovered for myself and for everyone else this truth, this piece of wisdom, that self-awareness is an incredibly precious gift. It can be painful. It can hurt. But that self-awareness, believe it or not, is, is precious and it's beautiful and it is a gift that comes to you. The human heart at times is, is incredibly blind. Uh, it, there, there are times that the human heart can run on denial the way that most of us run on coffee. I went into an office. I, you know, I forgot who it was. It might have it been you. Uh, it said, no coffee, no talkie. Uh, that's, your, that's your office, right? No coffee, no talkie. I mean, we run on coffee, right? Our human heart runs on, on denial. And any healing to our human heart, any restoration of community begins with this. we got to come to our senses. We have to come to our senses. Change is not easy, and change is oftentimes very, very painful. And sometimes we've got to you know, we, we've, we've get to a point where we're sick and tired of it, and sick and tired of it doesn't mean death. In other words... The pain of not changing has to be greater than the pain of changing. Does that make sense? That, that's how we come to our senses. Change is not easy and it's painful. It involves what we might call an upheaval of the status quo of self. Now, one of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, says, you know what reality is? Reality is what you can count on. Reality is what you can count on. It's what you run into when you're wrong. In 1979, that's what happened to me. I'm 18 years old. I'm in a Trans Am going 128 miles an hour, and everyone in that car is under the influence. And it dawned on me like lightning splitting the clouds that there was a reality right down the road. That there was, a, 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 metaphorically, a brick wall somewhere down the road. I just couldn't see it. But if I stayed on that road, I would eventually run into it. And I came to my senses. In that car, I came to my senses. And I decided that it was time to go home. One day the younger son wakes up 
And he sees the trajectory of his life while he's surrounded by pigs. He is at rock bottom. He is starving to death. He is living with pigs, the lowest of the low for a good Jewish boy. In verse 17, Jesus says, and he came to his senses. Praise God. He came to his senses. Praise God. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. My life is in a bad place. One day he just wakes up and he says, man, oh man, oh man, I messed up. I messed up. That's the truth of me. I've messed up. And my life is actually better in the presence of my father. Now, you want to hear something kind of weird? The father's love had always been there. The love that the father had for this younger boy had always, always, always been there. But in that moment, that love is exploding. It is just detonating in the heart of that younger son. The love had always been there. But in that moment, that love just explodes in his heart. And when it did, he made a monumental decision, and it is, I am going home. Which means, the second part of this is to return home. Which is just another way of saying repentance. The word repentance does show up a couple of times in this parable. You think about verse 7, you know, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner, and this is talking about one sheep that's been lost, who we repent than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then down in verse 10, three verses later, he says, and the angels of God over one sinner who repents are just celebrating, celebrating, and celebrating. In the movie uh, Force Gump, one of the main characters is Forrest's childhood friend, uh, a young woman by the name of Jenny. And Jenny, if you remember the movie, Jenny's growing up years in Mississippi were not good. She had experienced unspeakable, she, I, she just had these invisible wounds because of the way that she had been abused in, at her home. And Jenny decides it is time to get out of that house as soon as she's able to. And it's now the 1960s, she becomes a hippie, and she's dabbling in free love and drugs. And then the 1970s roll around and she's caught up in the party life of the disco age. And it's kind of the same thing. And all along the way, she continues on this trajectory of behavior with sex and drugs and horrible relationships. And at the very bottom of that time, she comes to her senses. And she, with a black eye and nothing to her name, goes home to Greenbow, Mississippi. And back in that same place, she finds what it is that she has always been looking for. What has to happen in us in order for that kind of co community to be built here? Well, it involves an understanding that there is the possibility of vandal, of being a vandal in, in our hearts because of a bad God narrative. And in the end, we want to be the kind of church that builds bridges to those who want to come home. Say it with me. We want to be 
the kind of church that builds bridges to those who want to come home. Let's stand and sing.